You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans 8 and verse 31. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we do look to you, Father, for your grace and for your empowerment, Father, for your enlightenment, that, Father, you'd be pleased to teach us from your word this morning. We know it is your good pleasure to do so. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate Christ in our hearts this morning. That, Father, you would truly illuminate us in the great things that you have done out of eternity until now and into the future and to eternity. Uh, Father, uh, give us um, more than a glimpse this morning of these great things that are certain things. And, Father, we ask that, Lord, you would show us their certainty. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. By now, you're, I think, as I look around, all of you are familiar with my teaching and preaching style enough to know that I'm very fond every once in a while of kind of stopping and just doing a review. And, um, you know, I think we all understand the reason for that is reviewing, I mean, it dramatically increases, it radically increases our ability to comprehend, doesn't it? Um, And retain the information that we get. Um, But... I think I can make a case right from this morning's text that um, reviewing is not only pragmatic, but it's also biblical. Uh, It's also biblical. Uh, Look at the first words of our text this morning. Notice what Paul says. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, the first question that we ought to ask out of that statement is what things? What things is Paul talking about? Well, I think at the very least we could say the things that we covered last week, namely the things that are in Romans 8, 28 through 30, right? What has uh, come to be called the golden chain, if you will, Um, namely foreknowledge, uh, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. And I might take the opportunity to add that This is not an exhaustive list that Paul gives. It's not an exhaustive list of everything that takes place as we are are brought to Christ in saving faith. Uh, For example, Paul doesn't mention adoption in that list, does he? And Paul has covered adoption, hasn't he? Uh, We've looked at adoption. He doesn't cover union with Christ, if you will. Be another example. And Paul certainly covers union with Christ in his letter to the Romans, doesn't he? Uh, We could add sanctification, uh, regeneration, perseverance, faith. Uh, These are things that could be added, but um, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a list that perfectly serves Paul's purpose in writing it. Now, back to our question, what does Paul mean by these things? Well, I think at the very least we could say the golden chain. Paul means the, the, the details that he has given us in verses 28 to 30. But I think that we have reasons to believe that there's more encompassed than just verses 28 to 30. And let me show you why. 
as I already said earlier in the service, our text consists of two questions. If you look at it, verse 31, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? Question number one. Question number two, if God is for us, okay, who can be against us? Now, in the second question, Paul makes an amazing statement. What's he say? If God is for us. That's an amazing statement. And here, I would submit that we can make a connection here. Because all the way back to chapter 1. In Romans 8.31, God is for us. But if you look back to Romans 1.18, if you just keep your place in Romans 8 and take a look all the way back to Romans 1 and verse 18... What's Paul say there? I'll give you a moment to find the place. Some of you don't need to turn there. You already know what Paul says there. Paul says, Romans 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. In Romans 8, 31, Paul says God is for us. In Romans 1, and verse 18, Paul says God is against, doesn't he? Um, How did this happen? Uh, The short answer would be through the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I I think with this inference, I could say pretty safely, uh, thus saith the Lord, that these things are everything that Paul has written up to Romans 8.31. Does that make sense? Okay, now as soon as we consider all that's come before our text, what are we doing? We're reviewing. Uh, We're remembering. Um, And for this reason, I believe that we have biblical precedent for review, and I believe it's very biblical to take time, even a significant amount of time, to stop from, uh, on occasion, as we go through a series like this, and actually begin to review, actually begin to, uh, uh, to take time to see what has come before. And I, I, again, I say it's more than being simply pragmatic. It's actually biblical. I, I would submit it's biblical. And we could add to that so many passages in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. You might think of, of Israel. If you've read the Old Testament, you know there are many occasions where uh, Israel sets up memorials so that they can remember certain events that take place. Um, the Passover was meant to, uh, it's not simply a memorial, but the Passover, one of the functions of the Passover, so that would, the people of Israel would remember. Uh, and then when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we would subscribe to, with those we, that would say that the Lord's Supper is simply a memorial. There are people that believe the Lord's Supper is nothing more than a memorial. Uh, we wouldn't take that position But one of the functions of the Lord's Supper is uh, Jesus says, do this in what? Remembrance of me. And we can think of the psalmist, the psalmist who seek to touch us in in, in every uh, capacity that we're capable. The Psalms, they touch us in, in every point of emotion that we're capable of having, whether it be joy or whether it be sorrow, whether it be grief or whether it be uh, weakness, whether it be uh, uh, in times where our health is completely uh, spent. Uh, the Psalms have something to say about all of those things. And what is the psalmist constantly calling us to do? It's constantly calling us to remember 
whether it be remembering the creation event, remembering God's revelation to Moses in the cleft of the rock, or remembering the covenant that God has made with David, uh, or remembering Israel's deliverance out of Egypt, which we see in Psalm 77. It's one of the things that the psalmist recalls, and we'll get to that here in a few minutes. Well, why all of the need for remembrance and review? That's a pretty easy question, isn't it? Especially for those of us who are aging, because we forget, don't we? We forget. We have a tendency to forget. We're prone to forget. And for this reason, we always need to review. So we're going to review. And what I want to do this morning is I want to use the statement, this amazing statement that, God, that Paul makes by the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit, uh, if God is for us, if God is for us, uh, let's use that as um, really our point here to do our review. And I might ask a question here. I mean, how is it that God who is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness could now be for sinners? How is that? Let's fill in the gap. Let's fill, in, let's fill that in. Now, before we begin to answer this question from Romans, Let's start by answering the question from our culture's perspective. And I won't take a lot of time with this, um, but let's just ask the question from our, you know, let's ask this question to our culture. How can God, who is against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, now be for sinners? What, what would we, could we expect to hear our culture say? Well, I can say this from personal experience, where folks would say, well, you see, Rick, um, Your theology is like really accurate in so many places, but you have a tendency, Rick, to take things like some things, Rick, you just, you just, you kind of take them in places that, I mean, it seems like you're a little fanatical on certain things, you know? I mean, Rick, you need to understand something. God's not against us. He's not, he's not against us. I mean, um, he's, he's basically for us, you know? He's basically for us. Unless you're like, really bad. I mean, if you get in a truck and drive through a crowd of people, that's a different matter. But otherwise, I mean, God is really, he's, I mean, his, what God wants is for you to be happy. That's what he wants. And he wants you to be happy. And, and he's there to help you when you need help. You know, whenever you don't have any recourse, any, he's there to help you. He's there to, you know, get you through. And, uh, you know, he exists to give you everything that you desire. I mean, everything that you desire, um, everything. Now, many of you are laughing. I, I expected that, actually. Um, the sad part is there are thousands upon thousands of people gathered right now to hear this message. That's what they're hearing. Um, they're not going to hear this morning that God's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Men. They're, not, they're not ever going to hear that in these assemblies. And, I mean, this does not, this should not take any of us by surprise. It doesn't take the Bible by surprise. I mean, Paul himself writes in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, in the first part of verse 4, he writes, quote, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They won't endure it. They won't have it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. End of quote. Um, and what is going on today is a large-scale denial that God could be against anyone. It's a, it's a large-scale denial. And 
Because of this denial, the question that we have on the table, namely, how could God, who's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, now be for sinners? That question isn't being asked by our culture. It's not even being asked. Um, So, um, if that question isn't being asked, then if there's no need of that question, then there's no need of the answer to that question. And what is the answer to that question? The answer to that question is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the question isn't being asked, then there's no conscious need in the minds of folks in our culture for Christ Jesus. And that's really what we have, isn't it? And I got to say, over the last five years, having you know been out there sharing the gospel with whoever will listen, I've really seen, I think I can say that I've seen over the last five years, a, a significant hardening on this one. I mean, there is, there is less and less of a, um, a seemingly of a conscious need uh, for uh, Jesus and the gospel. Um, this is a very dangerous time, and I don't say these things because I think we should relax in our, in our outreach. I think we should continue doing what we're doing. Um, I think it should it should stir us to pray more vibrantly for our culture. Um, but secondly, I would say that our culture believes that God could never be against anyone. And, and, and because of that, I mean, listen, if we don't believe that God could ever be against anyone, the statement that God is for us <coughs> is not really an amazing statement, is it? I don't think that if we were to go out into the culture with this statement, God is for us, I don't think very many people would find that amazing. And the application of that right now is pretty clear and obvious. Let's ask ourselves the question, do we find it amazing that God could be for us? I think all too often we're we're kind of taking it for granted, aren't we? That God's with us, God's for us. Um, But it's an amazing statement. And um, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? What things? Everything that has come up to Romans 8 and verse 31. I mean, let's take a look at some of these things. Let's do a review. Let's see what the, the... Paul's letter to the Romans has to say about this. In fact, let's start with the first verse of chapter 1. You're probably still in chapter 1, verse 18, right? What's the first verse say? Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for what? The gospel of God. Uh, of course, the gospel is just a translation of the Greek word euangelion, and it just it it means good news. It means good news, and we see here that it's not just any good news, but it's God's good news, isn't it? And with that in mind, skip down to verse sixteen. Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes." Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God." We could say. We could paraphrase it. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of God's gospel. That would be a a really good paraphrase of what's being written. I'm not ashamed of God's good news. That would be another good 
paraphrase of the verse. I'm not ashamed of God's good news. Why? What's the power of salvation for everyone who believes? Well, salvation from what, our culture asks. Salvation from what? Well, verse 18 answers. The the wrath of God. The wrath of God? I hear someone in our culture thinking the wrath of God? What is the reason for the wrath of God? Verse 18 answers, it's the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the answer could be summarized with two words, couldn't it? Ungodliness and unrighteousness. And I, I think I hear someone saying, well, you, you know, God is, God's not really worried about unrighteousness. God is a God of love. You'll, you'll hear that all day long in our culture as if being concerned about unrighteousness is somehow incompatible with love. Did you hear, did you hear what I just said? I mean, focus carefully on this. We hear that all day long as if focusing on ungodliness and unrighteousness is somehow incompatible with love. Well, it's not. Being concerned about unrighteousness and ungodliness is necessary for love. It's necessary. Someone might say, well, prove it. Okay, I'll prove it. If you're slandered this afternoon all over Facebook, if God is not concerned about ungodliness and unrighteousness, then he doesn't care. He just simply doesn't care. Because he's not concerned about ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, could he be said to be loving if he just doesn't care what happens to you? If he doesn't care about this, how could he be said to be loving? I mean, if he doesn't care about unrighteousness and ungodliness, then every time someone cries wanting justice, well, don't cry to God because he doesn't care. He don't care about justice, you know. Don't cry to him. Well, that's nonsense. Why do we cry justice? I think deep down inside, one of the one of the, the things in the very fragment of our souls, the very the very heart of our soul, is we understand that justice is right, and we understand that God is just. Whether we'll confess it or not, we understand it, and that's why when something happens to us, what do we want? We want justice. Well, if God if God doesn't care about ungodliness and unrighteousness, then don't call to him because he doesn't care. But the fact is he does care and because he does care, he is very concerned about unrighteousness. He's very concerned about ungodliness. In fact, he abhors it. The psalmist in Psalm 5 verse 4 says to God, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So I think I hear someone saying, well, pastor, it's not all the, you know, it's not all the little trivial things that God cares about. He doesn't care about the little bitty sins. It's the real bad guys he's against. I mean, that's what, that's, that's what we do. And I'm afraid we have a tendency even to do that inside the church. We have a, we're hearing it all the time. And I, I mean, does God care about little things like stop signs? He don't care about stop signs, does he? You can blow the stop sign. He don't care. Um, little white lies are okay as long as they're little white lies. They're just little lies, not big lies, just little lies. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't care. Um, again, this is a denial of God's concern about unrighteousness and ungodliness, isn't it? 
And it's rooted in an almost complete clueless, cluelessness of God's holiness. You know, in my notes here, I have the word cluelessness. I was going to write ignorance in there. I don't like the word ignorance. I don't like using it. I don't really like writing it. And I was in a thesaurus earlier this week trying to find another word. I couldn't find another word. I put cluelessness in here, but really the right word is ignorance as much as I don't like using it. Um, there's a wholesale ignorance of God's holiness, of what it means to be for God to be holy. And uh, that's one of the main arteries of thought in Romans 1 to 3. I mean, the point of contact here is righteousness. Paul is showing us first order of business as he opens up the gospel is to show us none is righteous, no, not one. That's his summary in Romans 3 and verse 10. What is Paul saying? He's saying, you know what? In order to get into heaven, there's a righteousness that's required. There's a certain righteousness that's required. In order to be able to stand in God's judgment, there's a certain righteousness that is required. In order to be able to escape the terrors of an eternity in darkness, there's a certain righteousness that's required. And guess what? Not a one of us in and of ourselves has it. We don't have it. We don't have it. And without an understanding of this information, you see, what gets said next just falls completely flat. I mean, if you look to chapter 3 and verse 21, Paul says, but now. Those two words, you remember way back, it was months ago when we were back in chapter 3, you remember how good those words sounded after we had plowed through chapters 1 and 2 and 3 of Romans, learning all of that, how bad it is. And then you get to Romans 3 and verse 21, and Paul says, but now, but now the righteousness of God is has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, what's that mean? It means now this righteousness that's required to get into heaven, the righteousness that's required to stand in God's court, the righteousness that is required so that we might escape an eternity of darkness is now made available. And it's made available apart from our personal performance of God's commandments. That's what Paul is saying. Well, okay, well, how do we get this? How do we get it? Verse 22 the righteousness of God through what? It's through faith. We get it through faith in Jesus Christ. We appropriate this righteousness by faith. And that takes us to chapter 4. There we have the example of two towering figures of the Bible in Romans 4. Abraham and David. And those of you who are familiar with Genesis understand that Abraham's name wasn't always Abraham, was it? It used to be Abram. Does anybody recall what Abram means? It means exalted father. But God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Does anybody recall what Abraham means? Father of the faithful. So one of the examples here is from the father of the faithful. And David, David is very clearly, without any competition, the greatest of the earthly kings of Israel. He has no competition for that position. He's the greatest king. So we have uh, an example from the father of the faithful, and we have an example from the greatest of the earthly kings of Israel. Paul's making a strong argument here, isn't he? 
a very strong argument. In fact, what Paul's doing is showing us how the Bible's put together, is what he's doing. He's showing us how these things all connect in Romans 4. In verse 3, Paul asks, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous, as righteousness. So Abraham did not have the righteousness that was required to get into heaven. He did not have the righteousness that was required to be able to stand in God's court. He didn't have the righteousness that was required to be able to escape an eternity of darkness until he believed God. But when he believed God, the very moment he believed God, that righteousness was given to him. And the same thing happens to us, you and I. I mean, the moment we receive Christ with saving faith, the righteousness that is required to get into heaven becomes ours. And that takes us to chapter 5. Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? What do we have now? Peace. And if we go back to our question, how can God be against unrighteousness and for sinners? The answer is Jesus, isn't it? Here we see peace. Uh, it's Jesus. In verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ did what? Died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. We know that. He stepped in our place, right? God is just. He has to punish sin. Jesus takes our place. God punishes Jesus where we should have been punished. The penalty we deserve is taken by him. He takes the wrath. You remember the word propitiation? We use that word a bit, but it's been a long time ago. What's propitiation mean? It means to take away God's wrath, doesn't it? Jesus is the propitiation. He takes away the wrath. Look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You remember this verse. I mean, by Adam's rebellion in the garden, Adam falls and so does all humanity, right? And humanity, we all fall into the realm of sin and death and darkness. You remember all, the, all, you remember all that stuff we studied weeks and weeks and weeks ago? And by Christ's obedience, Christ brings his people out of the realm of sin and death and darkness, Right? So as by one man's disobedience, verse 19, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, here again is our point of contact. It's righteousness. It's righteousness. And this takes us to chapter 6. Here Paul takes us to the inner workings of what we call union with Christ. And, and one of the most common objections to the gospel is, listen, if you preach this stuff, nobody's going to care about obeying the law. And what's Paul ask in verse 1? Look at Romans 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You remember verse 2. We covered it so much. By no means. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What's Paul mean? Verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might what? Walk in newness of life. So we learn there that faith unites us to Christ in his death. It unites us to Christ in his resurrection. But this 
it breaks the dominion and power of sin, but it doesn't break its presence, does it? And that takes us to Romans 7. And in Romans 7, um, if you look at verse 15, every true believer should be able to relate with verse 15. Paul says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. I mean, as unbelievers, we don't really hate sin. We hate the consequences of sin. We hate the trouble that sin gets us into. Uh, we hate the reputation that it earns for us. We hate all these other things. Uh, but we sin because we delight in it. Um, but when you become a believer, that gets turned up on its head. Now you have this new reason to hate sin. You hate sin because, it, because it's, it's offensive to the Father. As unbelievers, we don't concern ourselves with that. Um, you'll hear people, you'll hear, you can sit down and talk with people that will be in a big mess and they'll go on about their mess and um, you won't hear even one thing said about, you know, I've offended God. But that's not true with a believer. When a believer falls, what's the worst part of falling? We've offended God. We've offended Him. That's one of the marks of a true believer. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this brings us to chapter eight. You can hear the melody of verse one reverberating. We've been over this one more recently, haven't we? You can hear the melody of verse one just reverberate through the cathedral of, of, a believer, of the believer's hearts. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How does God be against ungodliness and unrighteousness and then be for sinners. All the answer is in Christ Jesus, isn't it? Look at verses three through eight. Here we begin to see the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans eight really starts to really bring in. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit's missing, but really becomes in focus in Romans eight. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to what? Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's the major difference between a believer and an unbeliever is the focus of their lives. Verse 6, to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And one of the great blessings of the new covenant is that God dwells with his people by way of the Holy Spirit, indwelling in our hearts. And if you look at verse 9, Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 14, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 16 and 17, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. And this speaks powerfully to suffering, which is a subject that Paul's bringing in. And it's warming, up, warming us up for the application of verse 31. This idea of suffering, all of us are going to suffer in this life from time to time. Verses 18 and 19, 
Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And that takes us to the golden chain. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I heard the testimony of a, it was a really um, surprise to me. I heard the testimony of a fellow that does a lot of YouTube videos in the automotive industry. He's an instructor, he, uh, especially in the field of um, uh, auto electronics. And I was listening to, uh, I've been listening to some of his his uh, videos, and there was one video where he actually goes to Panama to share his faith. I was looking down through my what Panama to share your faith, so I clicked on it and I uh, I listened to it, and you know, sure enough, he he was sharing his testimony. It sounded like he kind of recently came to faith, and he began to give what seemed to me a really sincere. Uh, confession of faith i was so delighted to hear it it's just sounded it a, a, a confession of faith sounds wonderful doesn't it and it, it's just like this warm melody to your heart when you hear people confess their faith especially when it's very pretty clear that they're they're kind of new you know they've just come to faith it's so wonderful to hear it and he's sharing this and he begins rattling off scripture verses and he's getting them right and and then he goes and Romans 8.28 is one of my favorites. And I'm thinking, especially after preaching last week's message, I'm thinking, okay, here we go. I want to hear this one. And this is what he says. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, you don't hear the verse quoted that often, do you? He quoted the verse. He quoted the verse. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to all of this? I know it's a sleepy morning. I know some of you are having your trouble staying awake, but what do we say to these things? Hopefully they're warming your hearts. If God is willing to do all this for you and me, what could possibly stand against him? Can I just take a little more time to make one application of this? Um, in the psalm that we read, Psalm 77, in fact, if you turn there, we read this as our call to worship this morning. And the psalmist in verse four, he says, I am so troubled that I, that I cannot speak. Now, I know there's a few of you who have been in that position. In the course of time that I have known you, I know that you have been so troubled that you could hardly speak because you were trying to talk to me in those moments. And this is where the psalmist is, you see. And when you find yourself in that position, you don't got to speak. You just got to know where to turn. Go to Psalm 77 and verse 4. 
psalmist is so troubled that he can't speak. What do we do when we're so troubled that we can't even speak? What in the world do we do? Well, he says to himself in verse 6, let me remember my song in the night. What's that mean? I don't know. Let's look at verse 8. Has, his, has, has God's steadfast love forever ceased? Feels like it, don't it? Let's look at verse 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Man, that's the way it looks everywhere. It looks like that. It feels like that. Then he says in verse 10, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Verse 11, I'll remember. You see that word, remember? I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. You see the importance of a review? The importance of remembering? He continues in verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And the psalmist meditates on the Exodus. He meditates on the Exodus, remembering and reviewing God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And he is comforted and he is strengthened. Listen, everyone. We have a lot more than, than the Exodus. The Exodus, I mean. We have a lot more than, than Exodus chapters 1 through 14, don't we? In fact, the, we have a lot of books after that, don't we? When our faith is weak and when there's trouble on every side, we have this amazing statement, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God foreknew us out of eternity and put his love upon us, set and placed his love upon us out of eternity and predestined us. We're all here, aren't we? And called us. Have you heard his calling? I don't know. Well, do you believe? Well, yeah. Well, then you've heard his calling. And he's justified you. And Paul speaks of your glorification as if it's already happened. Because it's so certain that it will. What do we say to these things? This is a really amazing statement, isn't it? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that this morning we can roll our sleeves up and do the work, for it is indeed work to review Oftentimes, Father, I find reviewing the most, really, the, the, it takes a lot of discipline for me to review. And I suspect that there are others in the group that I don't want to review what I've learned. I want to learn something new. I don't want to go over it. But Father, we see, I think, biblically, that we're just to stop and pause over what things is Paul talking about. And Father, as we do this work, Father, we, we find ourselves so comforted and so strengthened by what you have done and what you're doing and what you will do for all eternity, O oh Lord. And I pray, Father, that this may, may be a source of strength. And I know, Father, there are some present with us this morning that need this strength right now. All of us need this strength. Some of us, life is pretty smooth right now, but for others, no, not even close. 
And I pray, Father, that you'd be pleased to strengthen those, Father, who really so desperately need help. Faith needs strengthened. And, Father, your love and your willingness to save us needs clarified. And, Father, I pray that you would be pleased, Lord, to bless us in our hour of weakness and strengthen us, and that we may be doing this by deeply considering and and deeply clinging on to uh, these things that Paul talks about. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.